Hi, everyone. I'm Frieza Balstoon. And I'm Kay Jabelli. And this is Monopoly Attack. So we spent the last few episodes talking about the Digital Markets Act, in particular, its scope, you know, who it applies to, where the instrument came from in the first place, specific obligations and prohibitions. And today we're going to be talking about defenses, enforcement, the harmonization aspect of it, and the role of member states. But before we jump into defenses, I think it's important to remember that this regulation, in a competition case like the ones we covered in episode one, the enforcer needs to not only overcome defenses, but in the first place, prove several elements of a competition claim. Most important is that the conduct at issue causes anti-competitive harm. There's a few layers to this. Some practices require a showing of a degree of market power, some don't. And it's not enough to just put your competitors at a disadvantage. Competition law enforcement has been built on case-by-case assessment because you need to look at the likely effects of conduct in the specific market context. But the DMA kind of does away with that, with these 18 obligations we discussed in episode three, which kind of apply to all gatekeepers. That wouldn't be a problem so much if there were robust defenses in place that would allow for an effects-based analysis that could be done by shifting the burden of proof, as many of these competition policy reports of the last year has recommended. That would also kind of address the information asymmetries concern, because then you're telling the companies they need to come forth and really show the efficiencies, substantiate their claims, bring forward evidence that say, one particular integration or is benefiting consumers or, you know, refusing to provide one integration has a legitimate justification. And then the regulator would get an idea of the legitimacy of these. But there could be some risks about opening this up and having a bit more of the same. Don't you think, Frizo? I mean, I guess as competition lawyers, we start approaching the DMA from that perspective, of course, look at everything through that lens. But yeah, like you said, we have to remember this is something different, ex-ante regulations. I mean, the scope is not market power as in Article 102, but it's this gatekeeper concept. Like you said, there's no effects analysis in uh, imposing these obligations. And then finally, defenses. Again, some of them align with competition law, others don't. Um, I mean, the idea here of the EU legislatures is obviously not to replicate competition law, otherwise they wouldn't need to come up with this new instrument but you do something new, and we can see that at every level. Now, why do you think they don't want to replicate? What aspects of competition law are they trying not to replicate? Well, I suppose anything that would slow down enforcement, because that's why we work with all these you know, more clear criteria and no three-year-long uh, investigation of the effects, but clear imposition from day one, an imposition of obligations that the parliament and council have decided well, maybe not even competitively harmful necessarily, but unfair or bad for contestability of these markets. I mean, as a lawyer, in principle, I'm always nervous of regulator that says, you know, these cases are taking too long. We just need faster tools where we don't need to look at the evidence. Uh, we don't need to analyze the effects. That I'm inherently suspicious of anything like that, probably also largely because of my background in the U.S., coming up in that legal system that I think of more about restraints on government action than restraints on the freedom of companies. So I think, you know, you need to justify far-reaching government power to be able to do something like some of what's being proposed here. And competition law, maybe because it was largely modeled on the U.S. approach, it had those kind of 
checks in place to make sure that government enforcement wasn't just this kind of discretionary, whatever we think is fair, uh, that's how we're going to impose it or reshape markets based on our idea of what markets should look like. It's always been, to me, competition law, a tool of making sure the market is in a position is healthy enough to regulate itself. Now, obviously, these companies, the gatekeepers, so to say, will have lots of lawyers that they've been using in these many cases, these antitrust cases. And so I, I get the sense that there's definitely a perception that that whole process, maybe even this move towards a more economic effects-based approach is being called in question because of how these cases have gone. I, I do have some reservations on that, though. I can see where that's coming from. Of course, the commission has certainly been advocating for this DMA, uh, has come up with a proposal. So that would be the government in our EU context. But I still think it's important that it's the legislature in the end that will be uh, adopting this. So given the mandate to the executive, which, yeah, I guess <laughs> in, a, in a democracy, as long as then there's at least this third branch of the judiciary also keeping things in check, then I feel like there is room for that. There's definitely democratic legitimacy there, but I don't know if legislatures are the best equipped ex ante to weigh the trade-offs that are inherent in a competition case. As a practitioner, you know that there are these balances you know, between competition and privacy or between openness in one market and competitiveness in another market and the effects that happen between the impact on suppliers or on customers which is why there has been this need for a case-by-case -case assessment, or at the very least, an effects-based assessment. And it's hard for a legislature to make the optimal rules. You know, that's kind of the nice instrument of competition enforcement is good at reducing error costs. And that's part of why the different defenses and different legal tests for the imposition of restrictions or limitations on business freedom are justified when certain steps are met. And so, for example, one of the big ones, we've talked about the essential facilities doctrine, which is, well, if you're going to tell companies they have to deal with competitors or certain customers that they no longer have the freedom to choose who to associate with and that they no longer get to retain exclusive rights over their property, infringing their fundamental rights to property, that is a very high legal test under existing competition enforcement. Now, obviously, like you said, with, a, with the legislature, you don't need to meet that test. You just get the votes and you can do it. Like you said, I think competition law is a great tool to minimize errors, those error costs you talked about. I guess, yeah, the second part of this decision theory is those decision costs, you know, the application process of the rules, including by the executive. And I guess those were considered too high by the legislature, which is why this non-competition instrument showed up on the scene. But um, before we channel our inner uh, Montesquieu too much, should we jump in those defenses and exceptions? Like, do those uh, show some similarity to competition law, which is, again, my first sort of reflex to ask? There's two main defenses, Article 8 and Article 9. Article 8 allows a gatekeeper to request suspension of the obligations where compliance would endanger the economic viability of the operation of the gatekeeper. Now, Article 9 says that the gatekeeper may also request an exemption from one of the obligations on the grounds of public morality, 
public health, or public security. What really surprised me when I saw these was, first, there's nothing on competition defenses, no objective justification, no consumer welfare defense, no innovation or any of these kind of things that you would see in a competition case. And even more interesting is that there isn't a defense on the basis of the objectives of the DMA itself, fairness and contestability. So you can't even say, well, actually, what I'm doing here is increasing contestability, or what I'm doing here is more fair because you know it creates a balance in the ecosystem that takes into account the interests of consumers, not just the business users. So that already takes us quite a ways away from competition defenses. And then my other thought was Article 8, the economic viability of the operation of the gatekeeper is going to be really narrow test. I mean, it's going to be really hard to prove. If you meet the criteria, one of them is what, 65 billion market cap? you're going to have a hard time proving that your economic viability is in in trouble. And on Article 9, that's basically just WTO law. Like, if they didn't have that, then there's a potential trade risk because you need to have freedom for changes on these criteria in trade agreements. What about you? What did you think about these? So the the two articles you mentioned uh, are sort of reminiscent of Firstly, the failing firm defense, and then secondly, what we know as objective necessity in in competition law defenses, both of them not often used, uh, quite strictly assessed. It's an interesting point that there's also no justifications internal to the whole instrument. Indeed, as you say, um, defenses based on fairness or contestability. I hadn't thought of that so much before. I guess if you would import the competition law defense, the broad one about efficiency, I guess then the DMA would sort of be one big burden-shifting framework, right? Because as you said, like the effects are assumed, so then it would just be up to the platform to show efficiency. But even, even that is not allowed under this instrument. If you look at, you know, can the platform show that combining data is actually increasing the quality of the service because you're able to improve the personalization of the digital service? That's not a defense. You're not able to say that, you know, a kind of a integration or what the DMA describes as tying is increasing privacy or security. You're not able to show that one of these kinds of prohibited conduct is going to help create new services, features or functionalities, or to enable innovation or incentivize innovation to allow you to control uh, negative network externalities, the negative network effects that sometimes happen when you have bad actors in an ecosystem that are trying to, this tragedy of the commons. It's funny, like this concept of gatekeeper, right? It's seen as a bad thing, but in agriculture, you have a gate because you want to keep out maybe weeds or wolves or other sheep that are going to come and eat all your farmland that you've been carefully investing in, sowing the seeds uh, and hoping for produce to grow. So you put gates up, you keep out bad actors, and there's nothing in here to allow this kind of good platform governance that management science and economics tells us is necessary to, in part to avoid a tragedy of the commons and like the kind of disintermediation provision where because of the DMA you could have hoteliers who send an email to someone who has just booked a room through one of the booking platforms and then is told, hey, cancel that booking, take advantage of that wonderful free cancellation policy and book with me directly and I'll give you a 5% discount. 
then that which is allowed uh, and encouraged in the DMA makes it really hard for that kind of uh, free return or free cancellation policy to exist because you're, you're just getting abused by it. So you're not able to keep the value that you've enabled through managing potential market failures on that platform, on the marketplace, or in that ecosystem. And that straitjacket is problematic. I mean, you, you see it with other big Digital Services Act. More generally, just talk about content moderation, where there is now this increasing push to say platforms should more closely monitor and remove illegal content from those platforms. But the DMA makes that even harder, because if you are trying to kick off Parler, you can't do that anymore. You can't kick them out of the App Store or prevent them from reaching customers directly because of the DMA's uh, disintermediation provisions. And there isn't a, an exception here either for compliance with other laws or other legal obligations. So, I mean, I guess the commission just assumes that that is going to be introduced during the legislative process. But again, I think as initially proposed, it's missing something. I see what you're saying. I guess, you know, totally agree with the fact that platform governance is essential as a platform you need to sometimes or even often kick out these so-called bad actors. I think the, the possibility of doing that will see return in at least two forms, I guess, on the one hand, when putting these obligations into practice, I'm sure platforms will come up. I mean, obviously, for example, Apple will not allow any single app store. They'll have a process for that, just like they have an approval process for apps. So I think it'll be part of that. And the specific provisions also on app stores mention, of course, security and privacy as potentially limiting measures there. And a second one, and I know you're going to be skeptical of this one, is, of course, enforcement priorities. Not every obligation will applies to every gatekeeper in the first place, but the ones that do will not all be enforced. That's impossible. So I guess uh, it depends a bit on how, how good the commission is distinguishing between good platform governance and sort of unfair or decontestable platform actions. I think if I was playing devil's advocate, I would say on the second point, if they can fine a company 10% of its worldwide revenues for non-compliance with an obligation, they have a lot of incentive to bring that case. I mean, <laughs> they've got a, they've, they've got big... The commission actually never imposes 10% fines. I don't think that's ever happened. So there is a limit on the discretion. Yeah, they haven't under competition. But on the other point, you said, well, Apple will have rules on which app stores it allows. But I think that's the question. Will it be Apple deciding which app stores are allowed or will it be the commission deciding which app stores are allowed? I mean, I don't think a commission official is going to you know, check the boxes for approval. I think they'll be more tasked with checking whether Apple's approval mechanism sort of fits their standards or their idea. So I think the ball for... That seems like a lot of work. Uh, for Apple, you mean? For the commission to be checking all these, checking compliance with all these 18 obligations for all the potential gatekeepers. That, uh, that brings us to enforcement and they have their own staff luckily to go through this, although it doesn't seem like the largest team. I mean, all in all, uh, I think there's 90 people that would be tasked with essentially enforcing the DMA. Of course, if you compare that to DG Comp, I'm not exactly sure how many people work there, but it's a, it's a multiple of those 90 uh, people, obviously. There is a surprisingly small number of people that they're proposing will be needed for the DMA. And then there's also, I mean, relatively short timeframes in terms of compliance, which per the amendments of the 
Internal Market Committee, which is leading on the legislation, would be even shorter. So you would say, for example, you know, how long does it take to rework your technological systems to make them open and interoperable with all potential rival providers of ancillary or per the IMCO amendments, core platform services? How long is that going to take? Is that going to take a year? Is that going to take two years? Is that going to take three years? Is that going to take four years? Well, per the IMCO amendments, the DMA provisions would come into force in two months instead of six months. So originally it was going to be only six months and then the amendments come into force after two months. And with the amount of time it would take for a gatekeeper to be designated and for an investigation to be opened, it would take about seven months on the short end of the scale if the commission wanted to, if it had these non-compliance decisions ready to go. It's hard to imagine that companies will have everything done in time within a two-month period to, to comply. And then there's that risk that they'll just immediately be subject to these non-compliance uh, investigations, which again, the parliament is trying to shorten the timeframes uh, for those. So there's a lot of, are they setting the gatekeepers up to fail? You know, they're not giving them any defenses or justifications. Or It's pretty far-reaching, I think. We're going to have to do another episode of this in a year to see whose who's predictions are coming true, right? Whether we have those first 10% turnover fines already or uh, whether, whether things are going a bit more slowly. Um. I think we do have a contemporary example to look at. In Germany, when they did their amendments, they basically just transferred over a case that they had previously opened that would have been subject to all kinds of traditional competition law requirements, the Facebook Oculus case, and they just transferred that over and effectively shifted the burden of proof onto Facebook. And now we talked about in episode one, there's a case with Amazon using data to compete, which is prohibited by the DMA. There's multiple cases on Apple and their App Store provisions. There's several Article 5 and 6 obligations that would address that kind of conduct or change what they're allowed to do there. There's ongoing investigations into Google and Facebook as well. And those ongoing cases could very easily just be transferred under the DMA enforcement. The enforcer no longer has to worry about any of those competition <laughs> legal test uh, requirements. And at the same time, don't have to worry about any defenses because they, they're designing the regulation <laughs> the way they want it. So yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see in a year's time. I mean, I think the, the analogy with Germany doesn't completely work because the amendment that they made was to their Competition Act. And so obviously it was the Bundeskartelamt, their competition authority, continuing the enforcement of those practices under a different limb of that Competition Act, though. Here, I mean, the enforcer is also the same, uh, the European Commission, but I feel like there will be more of a distance between these two instruments. For one, because they're not the same act, it won't be the same people working on them. So I'll be interested to see whether any transfer happens and how that would work. Do you think that would be fair? Oof, would that be fair? Um, maybe in the Commission, I would not be transferring ongoing investigations, I think. I think that would be ripe for appeal, right? If they tried to do that, I think lawyers would be up in arms over that. So Right. So one other thing that we should get into is the role of member states in this all. Uh, obviously, as we've talked about before, this on based on Article 114 TFEU, which means it's a harmonization instrument. It means to take some power away from the member states because... Well, we have seen them adopt different instruments, regulating gatekeepers, often under different names, of course. What does this instrument mean for those national initiatives? Well, we 
would think that it would prevent this kind of fragmentation, right? But it doesn't quite do that. I mean, in the impact assessment, when they were talking about the risk of fragmentation, one of the things they were citing were the German amendments to their Competition Act. So you would assume that the DMA would then necessarily preempt and invalidate the German amendments, but that's not what it does. It even you know, carves competition law out and allows member states to continue to apply competition law separately. It draws this distinction and says, well, actually, this is an instrument that is not effects-based, so it's different than competition law and has different objectives, fairness and contestability. But I also kind of question that. I mean, are fairness and contestability really different objectives? Frizo, what do you think about that? I mean, I agree the, the DMA in its current form hasn't done a perfect job of separating out those two. I mean, obviously, you know, classification is absolute and perfect, but I guess we've been talking about the overlap between prohibitions found in the Act in competition law. So that distinction could definitely be clear, although, of course, we have to accept, I mean, that it is not competition law. So in that sense, it's only normal that for example, the German amendment to its competition law could still apply because otherwise, I mean, the member states couldn't enforce competition law at all anymore if this took away uh, the powers of any digital competition involvement. But yeah, a future challenge is definitely delineating those two. But that's the point of internal market harmonization, right? You don't want the commission to say this is how the platform needs to design its search results page or its you know, Facebook landing page or the Amazon buy box. And yet by allowing national competition enforcers to do cases in parallel, you're potentially creating that fragmentation where these products will be designed and received differently in different member states. That's not a internal market. Right. But again, I mean, since this is six anti-regulation, obviously we don't want to do away with the decentralized system of competition law enforcement. The danger is in the overlap, of course, but I mean, at least fundamentally, you know, France couldn't be adopting its new gatekeeper law if this Digital Markets Act gets adopted. So it definitely excludes those kinds of instruments. But it's true that potentially overlapping enforcement under competition law is still allowed. I mean, I think it's also impossible to exclude that because we don't want to take competition law itself away from member states. I totally agree. We don't want to take competition law away from member states. And in fact, member states could be more involved than they are in the current version of the DMA. And a lot of member states have been talking about wanting to be more involved. Some say, well, member states can be the eyes and ears of the commission. Maybe you have them uh, as the first instance of handling complaints and potential infringements of the DMA, which then get sort of referred up to the commission once they've been substantiated by the national authority, which also kind of makes sense because it's the national authority that's closer to the business users in that jurisdiction rather than having Brussels try to deal with complaints from all across Europe with 80 staff. And I do also kind of question this whole thing about its fairness and contestability, which is different. I mean, competition is about having fair and contestable markets. The ECN Plus Directive, the private damages directive that enables individual complainants to bring competition cases in national courts, we didn't have that in Europe until 2019 when that was passed. In the first recital, it says that effective enforcement of Europe's competition provisions is necessary to ensure fairer and more open competitive markets in the Union. So the 
objectives really do align in many ways. I think that's a bit of a fudge of a distinction. But see how that plays out, especially since member states as well are wanting to be more involved and not have the DMA preempt their national approach to competition, but also to unfair trade practices or also abuse of economic dependency, which is a whole other area of law in some national um, systems. There's a lot there to play for, I mean, in terms of the political negotiations and discussions. There is one last thing, though, I want to talk about. It's often said that the DMA only will affect the gatekeepers. And I really do question that. First of all, it's not clear from the commission's impact assessment that they really looked at the effects that these obligations would have on the market. And second, there's a lot of companies that rely on these products and services of the gatekeepers. So if they're necessarily going to be degraded, if you're an advertiser and you're trying to reach customers and Facebook's advertising product is less effective because they can no longer combine data from different sources, for example, data that the marketer or the advertiser would give to Facebook itself and combine that with Facebook's own internal data or other ways of preventing competition with data that would degrade the services, that would be bad as well. But maybe the counter argument to that is, well, that's okay, because then European alternatives will emerge. Maybe that's part of the thinking there. What do you think about that spillover effect? So, I mean, there will certainly be spillovers. I guess, hopefully, it's not only the gatekeepers that are affected. You've expressed some concerns for the suppliers relying on those gatekeepers to be affected as well, rather in the negative sense. The whole point, of course, is also for those businesses relying on platforms to be impacted in a positive sense. Like you said, the end for them to be able to contest those platform markets in the first place. But even if they're not contesting it necessarily, but simply operating within a platform, and of course, that's a good position to later contest it. Think about, for example, the non-discrimination provision uh, targeted at app stores. I guess if you're one of those apps that competes with Apple and somehow hampered in that competition through the app store, I guess there should be a positive spillover from the non-discrimination provision. Big question is, of course, what's the balance between those uh, negative and positive spillovers? And it's a million-dollar question. I think there's another million-dollar question that's hidden in this debate as well. And that's really, what does it do to competition enforcement when we codify certain practices as harmful per se, when we treat them as irredeemably unfair, illegal, assume that they have harmful effects, that we don't even need to look at any potential defenses, right? And the commission has proposed that in the DMA effectively. So I think as a creative lawyer, if I was going to go off and want to be a real troll out there, I would be going after every little platform who's using any of these practices and say, hey, hang on there, you're dominant on your marketplace, you know, your platform for uh, dog sitting services in Amsterdam, you're the only one who's doing it. And that gives you a local dominant position. The DMA tells us these practices preventing your dog walkers from leaking customers to direct deals or other kinds of provisions are harmful per se. That might make these 
smaller platforms really nervous if they get a complaint from someone along these lines? There's few small platforms that can be found dominant under established market definition principles. But also, I think the positive flip side of this being something different in competition law is that it will not denature the discipline of competition law. I mean, the reply to that would be, no, that's an instrument about contestability and fairness. It only applies to gatekeepers. So you still have to refer to those legal tests that have been established for uh, either discrimination, tying, predatory pricing, etc. I don't think there will be a presumption that because some kind of conduct is in a DMA that it is also illegal under competition law. I don't think and certainly hope that it won't work that way. I would hope not. And I would hope courts wouldn't interpret the DMA that way. But I think that there will be claimants who, who bring those cases. I mean, we see the DMA provisions being used as theories of harm in competition cases as well, right? Which we talked a lot about in episode one. These are modeled on competition infringements. Uh, so I think there is that risk. And if you look at this IoT sector inquiry, the preliminary findings of the commission, they used a lot of these same things and raised concerns about them, whether it's the prevalence of technical integration or concerns about control of the user relationship or access to data or lack of interoperability in a market that is nascent, growing, has more competitors and not clear that there's an entrenched gatekeeper position, but they're bringing up the same kind of theories of harm there. And in a competition context, right? They're not saying these practices are reducing fairness and contestability. They're saying these practices are anti-competitive. So we'll see, and we'll see, you know, ultimately, you know, does that make Europe an attractive place for investment in digital services and digital platforms? Uh, if there are these limits and restrictions in place on how platforms can engage in sort of good market practices. It should make a European tech sector more contestable. So, I mean, that should create chances for startups, but it remains to be seen. I mean, with an instrument that's not yet implemented, there's just both positive and negative signals. So at least I find it hard to see where exactly it will go. It'll be an interesting national experiment, especially with DOS now tabling, uh, well, Congress tabling all kinds of similar regulatory proposals. They might be incentivized or disincentivized to pursue those depending on the exact experiences of the DMA. And I did have a quick look at some of those and not surprised actually to see that in the US they do allow for defenses. (laughs) <laughs> which is a big are big... we still on the defenses k <laughs> <laughs> i guess i should stop now we've talked plenty <laughs> enough about the dma any final uh, comments or thoughts frizo looking forward to doing this again in a year thanks everyone for listening this is the wrap-up of our dma three-part series we will return to our regularly scheduled programming on the next episode